You may think you know the Museum of Flight, but do you really? Most museums have about 1% of their collection on display at any time. In this four-episode mini-series of The Flight Deck, we'll be looking at the extremes of our collection, four artifacts that tell amazing stories and stand out in unique ways. It was uh, an absolute joy to track down this little mystery from our, our collection. Over the course of these episodes, we'll go behind the scenes at the Museum of Flight's collection. We've got a lot of rare and unique materials that you won't find anywhere else. To explore our smallest artifact. I kind of laugh because when they were like, yeah, it's, it's really small. And I'm like, well, how small could it be? Our biggest artifact. It's the heart and soul of the museum and our campus, in my mind. Our youngest artifact. It's intended to open the door to space tourism. And our oldest artifact. I see an item that is in pretty darn good shape, even considering its age. Along the way, we'll talk to the Museum of Flight's experts about how they take care of all the stuff we have. When I tell people that I'm the director of collections, people usually think that means that I spend my days asking for money, that I am a debt collector. And bring in voices from outside the museum to help peel back the layers of these artifacts' stories. We get a chance to fly items that are just solely ours to then return to people when I got back so that they would have like this memorabilia that went to space. I'm your host, Sean Mobley, and this is the Museum of Flight's collection. This is your collection. Curious yet? Then let's get started. It's no secret that when people think of museums, they think of the past. In the popular consciousness, museums are where old things go to be put on display. Now, as you've already learned in episodes one and two of this special miniseries, the second part of that sentence is wrong. In the previous episode, which covered our largest artifact, we looked at the balance museums strike between displaying and preservation. And in the first episode of the miniseries, covering the smallest artifact in our collection, we went deep into the Museum of Flight's archives to understand why the vast majority of our artifacts, even those with incredible stories, are not on display. In today's episode, we're continuing this collection's mini-series here on the flight deck by debunking the first part of that sentence. The notion that museums are places where old things go by investigating our youngest artifact. Meaning... Newest by manufacturer date, not by when it arrived at the museum, because we've had a lot of older items that have arrived since then. Jeff Nunn is a member of the Museum of Flight's exhibits team and our adjunct curator for space history. Newest item in our collection is a United States flag that was flown on Blue Origin's New Shepard rocket up into space and then brought back. And it's currently hanging in the Charles Money Space Gallery. Blue Origin is one of several companies at the forefront of what's called New Space, a term used to denote the modern Silicon Valley startup approach to extraterrestrial exploration. While hundreds of companies, big and small, are either involved in or work in support of New Space, only a handful are actively launching rockets, and only a very few, like Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, and SpaceX, are preparing to send humans into the final frontier. Blue Origin is a local company. It was founded by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. It's his rocket company, and it's uh, it's what a lot of his Amazon money is currently helping to fund uh, about half an hour south of the museum. They are currently working on a whole, actually a 
series of rockets. The one that is their first rocket that's intended to eventually fly people is named New Shepard, which is named after Alan Shepard, the, the first U.S. astronaut to reach space. And, and like Alan Shepard's Mercury flight, New Shepard is intended to make suborbital flight. So it, it basically just goes straight up and then comes back down. And it's um, intended for both the suborbital research market as well as to open the door to s space tourism for people who want to experience the view from, from space for a few minutes and, and get this, the sense of weightlessness. The artifact itself is easy to describe. If you've seen an American flag, you know what this one looks like, as the Museum of Flight's collections manager, Sarah Frederick, explains. The Blue Origin flag is a American flag that was flown aboard um, Blue Origin's New Shepard vehicle, was given to the museum, um, folded up in its, you know, original flag box. Just, you know, it's an American flag you can buy at any store. And then along with the flag, um, there's also kind of a certificate of authenticity, which is a certificate of the flight that includes uh, kind of various flight statistics from that uh, New Shepard launch. Even the fact that this flag has been to space does not make it particularly unique among artifacts in our collection. We have a lot of space-flown flags in our collection, and in particular, the small, like, four-by-six-inch uh, flags were a, a very common uh, personal preference kit item for a lot of astronauts, uh, going all the way back to the, the Apollo era. And they were flown, it seems, uh, with the intent of giving them away. But the historic nature of the flight this specific flag flew as part of makes it a significant artifact and an opportunity to tell the story of new space to visitors who've probably never heard that term before. This flight that carried our flag, New Shepard 3, was the first reflight of one of their, their boosters. So the whole system is, is a single stage booster rocket and then a capsule that carries the, the payload or the, the passengers. Their very first flight, New Shepard 1, uh, was very successful for the capsule, but the booster had a, a hard landing and, and was, was destroyed on, on landing. And then on New Shepard 2, that is when they, they got the landing sorted and managed to successfully land the booster. And then, so New Shepard 3, which carried our flag, was the, the really historic moment was that first successful reflight of a rocket that lands uh, uh, on its tail under power. Throughout this mini-series, we've been trying something different. By giving you a phone number, you can text and a keyword to send to it to receive something back tied to the episode. So if you take a moment and text the word repeat, to 206-487-7090. Again, text the word REPEAT to 206-487-7090. You'll receive a text back with a link to a two-minute YouTube video showing the new Shepard 3 launch, which took place on January 22, 2016. When you look at the rocket, remember that the flag on display at the Museum of Flight today is safely packed away somewhere in the payload, ready for the ride of a lifetime. The symbolism of the American flag aside, the artifact itself is in many ways unremarkable. It's indistinguishable from any American flag that you might see driving down the road. Here's Amy Heydrich, the Museum of Flight's Director of Collections. Flags are one of those things, too, where the provenance is really, really key because 
It could just be an American flag. It could just be any old flag. But when you know the history behind it, where it's actually been, um, to see that original container and the certificate and the information about how it, you know, how it was passed from from one hand to another and into space and to back and, and, and to us, that is all part of that establishing that history of an artifact that makes it truly unique. And being able to relay that history and have any visitor to the museum look at it and say, it's not just an American flag. Look at the whole history surrounded it. That's why it's so important to collect those things that do have such um, rich provenance. In the museum world, this is called provenance. And as you might imagine, it's a big deal. We call that the provenance. Um, and so that is what kind of takes a uniform jacket from just like a jacket you would find at like a thrift store um, to making it something um, that would be considered sort of museum quality. A lot of the items we have in the collection, um, especially that, you know, our personal collections, um, they're just, you know, commonplace, regular items that millions of people owned and had, but it's really the story is what gives gives the object life. It's what makes it interesting to other people. Um, you're able to come in and see this jacket and read about the person that owned it and connect to that in some way. Provenance is key because it does more than tell the story of the object in a museum's collection. It tells the story of how the museum got that artifact. This opens up a massive, ongoing discussion in the museum world as museums across the globe, but especially in Europe and the United States and Canada, are realizing that their collections are filled with items taken as spoils of conquest during colonial times, or without the proper consent of the people who created these objects, or worse, outright stolen. To learn more about this incredibly complex topic, known as museum decolonization, I turned to experts who are working directly with these sorts of objects at the Field Museum in Chicago. My name is Michelle. I am a descendant of the Turtle Mountain Band of Ojibwe, and I'm a collections assistant. I'm J.K. Goodbear. I'm originally from Arizona. I am a Navajo, uh, Mandan, and Hadassah travel member, and I am a conservation technician. My name is Jamie Lewis. I'm the collections manager for North American Anthropology. You might wonder, where is he going with this? What does this have to do with the space-flown Blue Origin American flag? And I'm just going to ask you to go with me on this, especially for the next 10 minutes or so, as we're about to take a deep dive into some enormous questions that cut to the heart of museums as an institution and what they mean to society and it might feel like a tangent but trust me it'll all tie together nicely michelle jk and jamie all work at the renowned field museum in chicago right now specifically focusing on the renovation of their native north america hall now i visited the field museum twice and both times loved my experience but i have a very distinct memory of one visit where I turned a corner out of a state-of-the-art modern exhibit and found myself in a large room filled with row after row after row of cases filled with objects collected from North American nations and tribes. It was static. There was minimal signage and frankly felt jarring after the immersive educational experience I'd just left. I didn't have the vocabulary then to really capture what I felt beyond just feeling that this 
gallery felt old. Definitely. It's like a little... I had the, I had the same experience, yeah. <laughs> As you can see, I'm not alone. And it turns out that's because the gallery was old. It was developed over half a century ago, and it presented an antiquated understanding of both the people it depicted and of how to showcase objects acquired by a museum in unsavory ways. The whole identity of the Field Museum is rooted in colonization. The first collections of the museum were collected for and displayed at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, which was a product itself of colonialism in sharing cultural items, um, cultural practices, even People from places that had been colonized, our collections expanded from there through many different collecting expeditions from the 1890s through, let's say, about the 1940s. One of the largest reasons why collections like the one at the Field Museum, uh, the Native North American collection, is so large is because anthropologists and ethnologists would go out into the field and collect things and collect stories because they were anticipating this complete erasure of Native people, just totally expecting them to be gone within the next few generations. To better understand the issue, you need to understand some museum history. Museums as we know them today really started coming into their own at the turn of the 20th century. These museums were largely European in origin, or established in areas heavily linked to Europe, like the United States and Canada. The people running these museums were almost exclusively white, almost exclusively male, and almost exclusively people of prominence and power, meaning that this singular perspective ran through almost every museum. Museums reflected the ideas popular at the time amongst this insular group of people at the top of the food chain. Ideas like white man's burden, that it was the duty of the white race to bring enlightenment and western ways of life to the misguided, primitive rest of the world. And because these non-white communities were thought of as primitive and unable to even care for themselves, the burden also fell to white people to take their relics and cultural objects from them for their own protection. That's why so many of the great museums of today are filled with objects from cultures around the world. It's also why, even today, even in first-class, world-renowned museums like the Smithsonian or the Field Museum, non-white cultures are represented in natural history museums alongside preserved butterflies pinned into frames and dinosaur fossils. Did you ever think that was odd? Cultures were cataloged like all of the other natural sciences. So you have cultural items, material culture being cataloged like you would catalog a zoological specimen or a geological specimen. And as we all know, culture is not static, it's fluid, it's complex, and these ways that original museum folks at the field kind of understood these cultural items and cataloged them was um, very simplistic, did not allow for all of the nuances that come with culture. That's why the Field Museum is one of many undertaking the monumental task of decolonizing their collection or trying to reframe or reset their understanding of their own collection to include the voices of the people from whom the objects were taken or acquired. 
voices that were left out completely the first time around. Decolonization is just basically the act of getting rid of colonization. For us as museums, that would be confronting and challenging the colonial practices that we've operated on for so long. I think one of the most important things is sharing authority uh, in all aspects, you know, documenting, interpreting uh, Native American culture, uh, Indigenous cultures, sharing curatorial authority, having equitable collaborative partnerships. This is a big part of the major renovation to the Native North American Hall that the Field Museum is undergoing. Entire Native North American Hall, which was up for, you know, half a century or so, that contained uh, a lot of inaccuracies about a lot of different uh, tribal communities. So to be able to take that down and give some care to the items that were that were in there and to you know, be able to uh, treat them in a respectful way and uh, put them back into storage was definitely cathartic, as was being able to take down the uh, label copy and physically throw it away. When we were deinstalling, uh, we had something like nearly 1,600 items on display and we were taking them all down. We sent out letters to every tribe represented in that previous exhibit, just notifying these are the items that we have on display and they're going to be coming down and we would like your suggestions or thoughts on how we should care for these items. And then a year later, we we sent out another round of letters just saying an update, just to sort of make sure that that those tribes knew that we were serious about the relationships that we started and that we want to continue just, just having that open conversation. There are voices who oppose these efforts. In 2018, for example, when the Brooklyn Museum hired Kristen Winmuller Luna, a white scholar, as a consulting curator of African art, efforts by groups like Decolonize This Place to remove her from the position were met with counter-efforts from within the art community, including the renowned Nigerian scholar Okwi Enwesor, who stated that Winmuller Luna had the qualifications and knowledge of African art that simply made her the right person for the job. There are others who feel the whole thing is a waste, that this is a lot of time, money, and effort to fix something that doesn't seem like that big a deal. This is all in the past, after all. I can understand if somebody says, you know, it's in the past. Like, yes, it might be in the past for you, but until it's in the past for everybody, you know, then it's still something that we need to tackle. These things, you know, these people are still around today. They're still here. They still have a voice. They still have stories to tell. And, And if you just say, oh, it's in the past, it's fine. Why are you trying to bring this back up? Like, you're just erasing that voice that they're trying to activate. In my lifetime, I saw family members, I saw uh, friends, neighbors uh, not get running water, not have indoor plumbing, not have electricity. Like in my lifetime, I, I watched them as they started you know, to get these basic amenities uh, on the Navajo Nation. You can't say something is in the past when it is clearly affecting people today. For a lot of people, it's still very much not in the past. If you think it's in the past, it's just because you're very far removed from people really going through it currently. The Museum of Flight, due to the nature of our collection and the topics we cover, fortunately skirts these sorts of issues of provenance. But that doesn't make us immune to the question of decolonization. If you're trying to tell somebody else's story, you at least need to have them at the table. But even, I mean, you really need to let them tell the story themselves if possible, because there's too long of a history of museums telling other people's stories and interpreting things from their own 
viewpoint and with their own authority and not letting folks speak for themselves. Where museums like the Museum of Flight can stumble is fully embracing and describing artifacts whose stories are darker or more controversial, especially around topics of race, gender, and power. Finding the line between presenting a holistic, accurate, and unbiased account of war so visitors can understand why this history shouldn't repeat itself, while also respecting the sensitivities of their different audiences that may be visiting their institutions. Becca Harmson is part of the Museum of Flight's education department, working with the museum's volunteers. She studies how museums represent war, perhaps the most dark and controversial topic there is. Really, these museums stated that they don't want to sanitize the history as it runs the risk of desensitizing the public to the realities of war. Um, But they do understand that they don't want to horrify or overwhelm the visitor to the point that uh, it's harmful or prevents them from absorbing the exhibit's meaning or causes them just to to leave without continuing learning about the subject. An obvious example of this at the Museum of Flight is our Boeing B-29 bomber. Our B-29 specifically fought in the Pacific Theater during World War II, flying 37 bombing missions with the 875th Bombing Squadron, 498th Bomb Group. And you may get into the tougher topics with Operation Meeting House, so those kind of subjects may be brought up by visitors. And specifically for Operation Meeting House, on the night of March 9th and 10th, 1945, the U.S. Army Air Forces conducted a devastating firebombing raid, which was codenamed Operation Meeting House on Tokyo. Over a million people were left homeless, and there was an estimated 110,000 fatalities. The operation was considered to be a rousing success by the U.S., and these incendiary raids continued on other Japanese cities, targeting civilian populations. So it's, it's those kinds of subjects that can be brought up that are tied to artifacts like that, of how you discuss those specific missions, especially when they're dealing with bombing of civilian populations. Even talking about Operation Meeting House can be offensive to some. I've experienced this myself. In a discussion I had while at the museum one day about the B-29 and its role in Operation Meeting House, one of the participants grew upset that we were even talking about it at all. He said, quote, I'm a lot more concerned about the lives of our soldiers over there than Japanese civilians. How is a museum like ours supposed to share even the most basic facts about the B-29's involvement in something like the firebombings of Japanese cities, if even a mention of the impact the bombing had on Japanese civilians was enough to elicit such a visceral negative reaction from a visitor. Another Air and Space Museum came under fire for choosing not to include any military insignia on one of its Vietnam War era helicopters. They had a Huey helicopter on display that had purposefully no unit crest on it. As they're trying to be representative of all Hueys, a noted icon to that conflict, and the service on all the service members who flew on them. And the museum has received numerous angry comments concerning that, um, of wanting specific unit crests or specific soldiers or specific crews to be recognized on that Huey. And, but in the end, staff felt like a larger contextual story can be told while focusing on only one or two people or units, uh, but they try to compromise and respect people's opinions by highlighting those individual stories in temporary exhibits, additional AV media, or programming. For people who have never been directly exposed to war zones, images of the brutality of war can be extremely disturbing. 
In addition, those same images or sights and sounds that a museum might use to try and immerse a visitor might trigger a veteran with post-traumatic stress, making striking a balance between showing a full, honest depiction of war in a museum and keeping visitors' needs in mind an even finer line. At a Marine Corps museum that was creating an exhibit on the subject of counterinsurgency, in planning, it was discussed how the subject may cause some visitors to have negative or overwhelming emotional reactions to the exhibit. Uh, so they actually planned within their exhibit two ways for visitors to leave the exhibit quickly. First, there was a bypass that included a disclaimer at the beginning informing people about what they're about to experience and that the bypass was available if they didn't want to go through the exhibit. But the bypass provided the same information as the exhibit without the visitor having to be immersed in it. And there was also an escape hatch for visitors who became overwhelmed in the exhibit. And this hatch allowed visitors to exit quickly to a quiet spot where they could be alone. And in this way, the museum could still include a difficult subject matter in their exhibit while also ensuring that all visitors felt comfortable and safe and that they had choice in in what they were experiencing. While the Blue Origin space-flown American flag may seem fairly neutral, a full portrayal of the story can still be challenging to convey. The reality is, while we tend to think of space exploration as a great common cause, there have been very vocal people since even before NASA existed arguing against the space program. One of the criticisms is that it's dangerous, that people die. Ron Hobbs is a NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory Solar System Ambassador. It is interesting to note, after the Columbia disaster in 2003, there were some people who wanted to retire at the shuttle right then, but the astronauts themselves clearly said, we are willing to take that risk. We think that this is an objective that is worth potentially dying for. Another common argument against space exploration is the cost, both financial cost and opportunity cost. Some mid-century civil rights advocates, for example, saw the moon mania of the 1960s as a distraction from the very terrestrial issues of racism, segregation, and sexism. To them, going to the moon was not a triumph of human ingenuity, but a gaudy display of capitalist excess. Even today, there are those who feel that the money spent on space could be put to use solving problems like homelessness and world hunger. Well, first of all, there's not a lot of money there. Since 1972, I think it is, NASA's budget has been less than one half of 1% of the federal budget. However, there are tangible and intangible benefits to space exploration. For example, in the midst of the COVID-19 epidemic, NASA technology has played a part in keeping frontline workers safe. There are things that are developed for or by people involved in space exploration, which are used here on Earth. One of my favorite ones right now is that uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory is run by the California Institute of Technology down in Pasadena, California. And they are, of course, the the part of NASA that uh, builds and, and launches and operates most of our Uh, robotic probes like the rovers on Mars. COVID-19 came along, uh, some of the engineers there decided they could uh, design a respirator, which was in dire need. And advocates for space exploration also point out that NASA, as a government agency, helped push racial integration in the South, where many NASA facilities were located, thanks to changing federal rules and a ramped-up effort by NASA in the early 1960s to recruit heavily from African-American communities. 
These advocates see the moon mania of the 1960s not as a distraction, but an opportunity for an entire country to be united around a common goal, regardless of race or creed. And as the 1960s passed and space exploration evolved, now multiple nations who might disagree on big issues politically cooperate to make the International Space Station possible. For the last 20 years, we've had people living in space 24-7 from a consortium of 15 to 17 nations. I forget how many are in the International Space Station program right now. If you listen to both the astronauts and the cosmonauts and everybody who's gone to space, it's something that NASA calls the overview effect. They talk about both seeing the Earth from space and recognizing that there are no borders, and also the fact that they are working together, launching together, living together aboard the International Space Station is something that I think is a benefit uh, that is great. There is a movement to nominate the International Space Station program for the Nobel Peace Prize. And if Physicians for Social Responsibility or Doctors Without Borders, both of whom have won the Nobel Peace Prize, I think uh, there's a good case for the International Space Station program. Arguments for or against the concept of space exploration aside, there's the further point that Blue Origin, SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, and other new space titans are owned by the richest of the rich. There are some who are wary of trusting our space future to people like Blue Origin founder Jeff Bezos, whose other company, Amazon, has a 30-page Wikipedia article dedicated solely to the criticism and controversies the company is involved in, from labor and wage issues to tax avoidance and anti-competitive practices. So, how does the Museum of Flight report a history like this that's still in the making? while also not becoming a mouthpiece for one corporation or another. How do we give a fair and complete look at something like the Blue Origin flag and what it represents, while also knowing that future donations of both artifacts and money may be on the line? How do we balance the idealism and bright future that the space program represents to so many people around the world, while also not sheltering people from the critiques and complexities space exploration brings with it. And how do we do it in approximately one and a half sentences, which is the average amount of reading a visitor will do when they look at a museum sign, if they even look at it at all? Jeff Nunn. It's a balancing act. There's a lot of discussion here right now about making sure to be very focused and very thoughtful about what we take in. How do you tease out those important threads in terms of what stories are worth telling in a museum setting and that can be told in an in historic way without the museum falling into a, a, a trap of acting as like a marketing mouthpiece for these private for-profit companies, which could honestly present some legal challenges as we are considered educational nonprofits. As I mentioned, it's a balancing act. With something like New Shepard, because it was a first in that it was the, the first powered reflight, they had made history at that moment. And so it's safe to say that, okay, if this flight is successful and we flew this payload on it, it, it would this flag is then representative of this very historic moment. And I don't think anyone could argue that it was, it was a, a frivolous moment because they flew hardware, they reached 
space and they were the first rocket in history to, to land uh, under its own power. And, and it's if you kind of compare it to the early days of aviation, uh, that new Shepard rocket has now flown more times than the Wright brothers' first aircraft ever flew. So you can make a very strong argument that it ha has a place in, in history. Museums are uniquely positioned in the middle of all of these very complicated issues and pressures because we have stuff. Museums have artifacts and objects that belonged to someone. And that creates a personal connection that you just can't get anywhere else. Museums have these objects that are tied to those difficult or challenging histories, and it gives visitors something tangible to connect to. And that's what helps museums be such a great location, helping visitors to connect to something, realize that, you know, this history happened. And I may not know the whole story about this history because there are artifacts that talk about these stories in different ways than I never experienced before. And so it gives them a location to encounter those different perspectives that they may not encounter before, connect to those different artifacts, and also have educated staff and volunteers available to them in order to help them work through what they're learning in that exhibit being able to have those dialogues with those people of, you know, this is what I experienced. This is what I'm learning about this object. This doesn't quite, I've, I've never heard this before. This is something new to me and helping them to work through those, those dialogues, helping them to work through their questions. Overwhelmed yet? <laughs> this is just a taste of what museums deal with when curating their museum collection or creating an exhibit. It takes a lot of work and thought, and no matter how much work you put into it, there's always someone who's gonna feel that they were left out or that part of the story is missing. While it is incredibly difficult to balance all of these pressures and considerations and perspectives, a museum that takes the time to do it right will leave the visitor thinking and feeling that they are one part of a much larger story. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. A special thank you to those of you who have been able to make a financial contribution using the donate button at museumofflight.org podcast over the last few weeks. The COVID-19 pandemic has deeply impacted nonprofits around the world, and we're not through this storm yet. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for helping keep this podcast and other major online educational initiatives at the Museum of Flight going through this difficult time. This is part three of a four-part mini-series. If you haven't listened to parts one and two yet, I really hope you do. You can find those episodes on this podcast feed or by going to museumofflight.org podcast. The next episode of the podcast should be the finale of this miniseries, where we take a look at the oldest artifact in our collection, and it's probably far older than whatever you might be guessing it is. After that episode, we will probably be back to our twice a month release schedule. These miniseries episodes just take so much time to write and edit. 
I appreciate the grace that you've shown as I've had to delay production. If you want to see the Blue Origin Space Flown American flag, you'll find it on the wall in the Museum of Flight's Charles Shimoni Space Gallery, right next to the Space Launch Virtual Reality Experience in that gallery. If you'd like to learn more about the Field Museum's work as they renovate their native North America hall, you'll find some links in the show notes to the work JK, Michelle, and Jamie and their colleagues are undertaking. And if you're in Chicago, I, I hope you get a chance to visit the Field Museum. It's, it's a wonderful place. Please subscribe to the podcast so you stay up to date with our episodes. And please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. These miniseries episodes especially have been such a labor of love and hard work that I personally really appreciate hearing what you have to say about them and appreciate you spreading the word about them. You can contact the show at podcast.museumofflight.org. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>